Welcome to Trial and Medical Error, where we bridge the gap between medicine and law and unlock groundbreaking trial techniques. Join hosts Brendan Lupitan and Greg Uniton as they share novel insights and strategies to help you confidently tackle the most complicated cases. All right, welcome back to another episode of Trial and Medical Error. Greg, today we're going to talk more about you know, some of these big picture topics uh, from the reptile, now the edge, and how they apply, I think, practically in the medical malpractice cases that that we have tried. And so today, and this is a really, I think, very important concept and and sort of, it's not just case selection, but it's the way that then you work up the case and how you look at it, which is uh, system failures versus event cases. So give us a little summary, Greg, of you know the distinction between the two and how it applies to a medical malpractice case. Yeah, the, the, so the distinction is pretty straightforward. A system failure case is, is, is almost best explained by what it's not. It, it's, it's not an event case, as they're known, where a doctor cuts the wrong structure or makes just makes a bad decision about the care of a patient or where there's an oversight with respect to the patient's care, whether it be a medication that's not properly managed or a sign or a symptom of a postoperative complication that's not identified and treated promptly. It, it involves a specific patient, a, a specific condition of that patient and aspect of treatment that was wrong, overlooked. There was a medical error specific to that care of the patient. And usually the person to blame, what really distinguishes an event case from a systems failure case is there's an individual to blame, most likely. One or, one or more individuals, such as a nurse or a doctor, uh, for failing to communicate or just failing to do their job and fulfill their individual responsibilities as a licensed professional, a licensed medical professional. On the other hand, a systems failure case, we look as look at as more of an administrative failure. And what really it boils down to is a violation of a policy or a procedure. That violation may be in the failure to have the, the appropriate policy and procedure in the first place. And so, you know, that typically comes up in the context it can come up in the context of licensed professionals making mistakes, but it also comes up in just a general, when the root cause of the error is, again, the failure to have a policy or procedure in place. And it may, it may just be traced back to the failure of oversight by administrative personnel or, or employees of a hospital, whether it's a clinical director or a, a chief of a department uh, or somebody who is in a non-clinical role that's an administrative role responsible for making these uh, policies or procedures. Yeah, and I think you're exactly right that almost always an event case, it's a person. It's almost inevitably like a it's a single person, and and you'll most frequently see it in these in the most dangerous type of case. Most difficult is you know mistaken judgment. I mean that's literally a defense uh, that the defense will raise. Is oh, it was just a mistaken judgment? They you know they. Did the best they to to make the right decision. It it turned out not to work out the right way, but that's not negligence. I mean that that's a extremely difficult case to try to overcome. But yeah, the different you know the distinction is 
individual versus literally system. And a system is just a set of things working together. So, you know, beyond, you know, policies, procedure violations, which are, you know, very common system failure cases, you also have, you know, communication cases or handoff cases or, you know, siloing uh, between different medical uh, professions or you have, you know, the system within which results are communicated or not reviewed and so on and so forth. You have these big picture failures. And the standard line, and, and it's a very accurate line, is that especially in medical malpractice case, you want to be looking to create a case that's a system failure versus an event case, okay? And there's there's many, many factors for that. But I think one of the the easiest, like lowest hanging fruits of why an event case is tough is because it's typically against an individual. And, and now you're trying to fight the uphill battle of people's natural inclination, and rightly so, that, you know, healthcare providers, doctors, nurses are, are trying to help. They're not trying to hurt. And, and so in order to, you know, to prove your event case, you've got to get a jury to say that this individual was negligent. And as we'll talk about in, in future contexts, there's, you know, the, the concept that the way most people think about negligence is a very high burden for us to overcome. It's much higher than what the reality is. People do not think of negligence for what it actually is, is civil negligence. Everybody thinks about criminal negligence and they, they think of, you know, the action of this doctor or nurse has to be borderline criminal in order for them to find that that particular person was negligent. And so because of that, that great hurdle, the system failure case is much easier to win. Also, the system failure, I find, I think a part of the reason why, why it is more effective is it's easier for people to hold some type of um, more general system or a hospital or a corporation responsible and make them pay uh, a jury than, than it is to make an individual pay, just for a whole host of, of reasons in the way um, you know, the way that we think about, about, about cases. Okay. But that said, Greg, can, can you win an event case? Do you have to, should you say no to every event case or should we be looking to make a systems case out of every single case, regardless of whether, you know, most likely it, it is an event case. There was a big mistake by somebody. Well, no, I, th I think you can take an event case. There was a time that where I, I said to you, I think we should only take system failure cases. And you strongly disagreed with that, uh, respectfully as always, that there are just some event cases that are just really strong cases and there, and there are serious injuries. And we've had success on some event cases that were indefensible, right? So right. so no, if you have a good event case, that's, that's something you don't want to turn away. But it, it, it's... Almost, you, you have to hold a higher bar because mo most cases that come through the door, when they come through your your intake department, they don't look like system failure cases right off the bat, do they? No, no. they look like they look like event cases. And so, I, I think that proper inquiry at that time is this a really strong event case on its face, and if not, well, probably we should we probably shouldn't take it, right? Exactly. Or, you know, is there a way to make this so-so possibly good event case into a decent system failure case? How do you do that, though, is a question. Well, I think you look at a lot of the common ways. I mean, you you kind of, to use the term you talked about earlier, 
you do your own root cause analysis. And a lot of times, you know, what is seemingly a just mistaken judgment by an individual doctor goes back to, you know, it goes back further. Maybe there was some type of miscommunication. Maybe they didn't have all the information. Maybe somebody didn't provide them all the information. Maybe there was an overall process at the hospital or the medical facility where this, you know, seemingly single event occurred that this was something that was in the making for a long time and that this event that the case seems to be about is just the, you know, sort of microcosmic result of something that had been set in place by a defective system long ago. So I think that's where you you look. That said, I think the issue is that in order to win an event case, the outcome or the decision-making process or whatever the action was has to be so far outside what anybody would normally think. There just isn't a question of, of the negligence in a sense. And I to bring this back to the reptile, okay? So one of the core concepts of what the reptile is, at least you know, in my uh, humble understanding of it, it's trying to get the jury to care about your case. Because normally they're coming in and they don't care. Why should they? They're, they're prisoners to your trial. They have to take up all this time to decide somebody else's problems and give money to somebody else with all the other preconceived notions they have about people that sue for money and so forth. And the whole reptile concept is essentially showing them the danger, showing them what this safety rule is and what the danger is to everybody by getting it violated. It's, it's appealing, finding a way to appeal to their own self-interest that they want to enter a verdict in favor of your client who is injured in large part to maintain that safety rule to protect them and to protect their uh, family members. But I think the general self-interest battle is incredibly difficult to overcome because as you and I were talking about before, there's this well-understood phenomena in psychology called, you know, it's just world fallacy or the just world phenomena, which is all of our just sort of standard belief that we want to believe that we live in a, a fair and just world where essentially, if you boil it down, the people get what they deserve, okay? And people do not want to think of a world in which they could go for a routine medical procedure or get regular medical care and because of a doctor or a nurse's mistake in judgment, this horrific thing could happen to them. And so the, the default thought, even though if you ask somebody, they probably wouldn't articulate this way, but the default thought for a lot of people is somewhere, somehow, this injured person had this coming to them. You know, whether they think it's like karmically that, that they did something bad as a kid and it's finally coming back or, you know, well, probably there's some health thing that caused them to get the cancer to begin with, or there's some health thing that, you know, it's their fault that they were here in the, in the beginning and who are they? And that wouldn't happen to me. I wouldn't have ever been in that position is what it comes back to. And as a result, I'm not going to hold this doctor or nurse negligent. And I think that is big picture why it comes back to People don't, they just don't want to imagine that a doctor who they believe is there to care for them and try to help them could ever cause a lot of harm, which ties into why your uh, event case has to be such an outlier, or you need to find a way to, to win for a legitimately injured patient, injured by malpractice, 
you have to find a way to craft it into a system case against a, a corporate entity because I think it changes the dynamic of how jurors are, are going to think about assessing blame and fault in the case. Well, do you think some people, some jurors, believe that a, a just world is one where a severely injured, permanently injured, or deceased patient should be compensated if there is a reasonable basis to believe the doctor or the nurse or the licensed healthcare professional were negligent? I think the default is if it's the doctor can credibly say that, you know, yeah, this was a this was a bad outcome. I, I feel terrible about what happened. And if I had it to do over again, I knowing what I know now, I would have done things differently. But if I truly went back and did it again, I would have made the best decision because I made the best decision with the information I thought I had at the time. It's unfortunate the way that it turned out. I mean, that's an incredibly difficult position for the plaintiff to overcome uh, because people, accidents happen, there's complications with medicine, and just the cognitive dissonance, again, of thinking about how that could happen to them. And now their doctor is going to be, you know, careful and and they're going to do things differently than what happened to this person. And, and this is really sad and we feel really bad for this plaintiff, but we're not going to blame this doctor and make them pay money for it. So in those event cases, if, if you just can't find a way to turn it into a, a system case, I think then you have to look for other factors. You have to, you know, to use another, you know, edge reptile concept, try the lie. If there is one, can you show that there's inconsistencies? I've heard things, you know, where in order to win a medical malpractice case, you have to show very clearly that, you know, either the doctor didn't care, the doctor was not as educated as they should have been, or the doctor lied. And if you can't clearly show some combination of that, even if your doctor says, yeah, no, this was clear-cut negligence, you know, that, that caused your patient's harm, you're probably going to lose that case. You're going to lose that case a lot of the time. And I think you're probably right, but I don't know. You you know me, I'm always trying to figure out like, how do we get the upper hand? Like, how do we make the defendant look foolish or their experts look foolish through the medicine, right? I mean, do you think there's a place for, let's say, Zoe Littlepage's approach, helping you get over the hump of the, the bias, basically, for a doctor and, and just, you know, the, whatever their judgment was, as long as it sounded reasonable. And to expand on that, I'm thinking of all the red flags that Zoe Littlepage uses in her trial presentations. But what I equate that with is identifying every reason why the doctor's judgment was bad judgment, not just wrong judgment. You have to show that it was bad judgment. And how do you do that? You use things like well, red flags that were ignored or symptoms or signs or history, historical factors about the patient that were not taken into consideration. And I think what it boils down to is <laughs> these are the cases that the insurance companies typically settle, right? Because they know we have the goods on the doctor and there's no way that they're going to get out of a trial without looking like they made a bad judgment as opposed to just a wrong judgment. You think that that's one way to possibly do it? For sure. And we we talked about that in the the Marco case that that we did the podcast on recently where you know, we really tried to show that it wasn't just one bad decision, but there was a series of bad decisions. And, you know, there's research out there that shows that it's, it's to our benefit 
to show all these different kind of forks in the path leading up to the outcome, that it wasn't just, you know, doctor could have picked option A versus option B. It's that there was an option A, option B. They took B, the bad one. Then there's another one, option A, option B. What it prevented, they took the bad one again. Then there was another one, you know. And the more of those forks in the road that you can clearly demonstrate were bad choices, any of which, if the correct choice had been made, the the safer choice, the, you know, maybe the more difficult choice, the doctor had to come into the hospital or whatever it is, that's going to improve your chances of winning versus just like one big mistake, uh, one big mistake in judgment. That's a, a very, very difficult case to win. Uh, just, you know, I think people are very willing to forgive an honest mistake, but they're less willing to forgive a series of, you know, quote, honest mistakes. You talked a moment ago about creating a, a system case, system failure case, uh, by looking at a root cause analysis, essentially. Do you think every potential medical malpractice case can become a, a systems case or can be made into one? No, I, I think it's not always the right move to try to force a square peg into a round hole or vice versa. I think there's certain cases... I give a perfect example. You'll you'll remember the the spinal surgery case we had several years ago, where our you know thirty four year old client goes in for a single level cer- cervical uh, herniation, causing some re- you know minor radiculopathy in his arm, and he comes out a quadriplegic because the doctor forced the fusion device too far into the the spinal canal and and crushed the guy's spinal cord. Now, was there potentially a system failure there? conceivably, you know, maybe the hospital had been aware of the fact that this doctor had a high error rate or, or, or so on and so forth. And maybe if you dug into it far enough, but in that particular case, the outcome, this, the event in question was so, so terrible and so out of this world, I think of, of anything anybody could ever imagine going in for this essentially routine, you know, neck surgery and coming out quadriplegic, you didn't need it. Could it have been there possibly? But but I'll give you another example. So we had the, the Westwood case from, from several years ago. We get a good verdict on that case. And that was a, a gallbladder case where doctor, we had very clear proof, did not use the critical view of safety, which is the absolute standard of care. But we won that case because we caught that doctor in a very meaningful lie. And I think that changed the whole outcome of the case. And we'll never know, but I suspect without that, big lie, which is that sort of secondary part of an otherwise event case, we don't win that case. I also am not sure how you make that case where, you know, this particular doctor just chose to cut corners in the way that he, you know, set up the removal of this patient's gallbladder. How do you, how do you turn that into a systems case? I don't really think you could have credibly. Well, you you mentioned digging in and you were a little bit skeptical, but you mentioned in, in some cases you could dig in and I've seen it happen enough times to make me kind of believe that, you know, it, it can happen. If you really dig in with your discovery, something will present itself. That that system failure will present itself. And I want to, I'll point you to an example, I'll, and, and I'll ask you to explain it to the folks out there, of a case that was probably barely a million-dollar case, which you and that lawyer out in Dubois, PA, made into a three-and-a-half-million-dollar case, a multi-million-dollar case. I can't remember the exact number. How did that come about? Can you just explain that briefly? Right. That case you're talking about was a very difficult event case. That was simply 
a surgeon, you know, not maybe arguably performing a coronary artery bypass procedure as properly as he should have in somebody that had recently had a heart attack and needed this surgery to bypass, you know, blood vessels that were completely clogged, you know, with atherosclerosis and so forth. Not a great case. I mean, just not a very, very difficult liability case. You know, limited future earnings, if any, because of the heart attack that had already happened that had nothing to do with this particular doctor. However, you get into the case and and you come to find out that, you know, well, first off, this was a, a contract surgeon and he had only been there for a short period of time. So then you start peeling the onion back and finding out, oh, well, he had been at other places for very short periods of time. Then you start digging into you know, what was his history of surgical complications? And you find out that it was very significant. And then you start digging into the doctor's personnel file, his credentialing folder and so forth. And you start to find out that the hospital had been put specifically on notice that this was arguably a dangerous surgeon that, that should not have been performing the procedures in question. And then as you peel the onion back further, you find out that, this doctor really wasn't ever performing the type of surgery in question, but because the hospital needed, from a financial perspective, skills that he had in other types of surgeries, they let him start doing these ones that he was not qualified to do. And, and then that case starts to go in a totally different, more nuclear uh, system failure perspective. You keep digging, you find out that other people are warning the hospital that this person's not safe and so forth. So yeah, I mean, that turned into a system case. And, and I think the, the moral of the story is you should always be looking for the system failure if you can find it, because there's no doubt it's, it's always stronger. It's just, I think that it's not always there. And, and one last, you know, sort of, you know, parting piece of advice I'll give, and I think you'd agree with me, you know, great way to discover potential avenues for where there might be a system failure in an otherwise event case type scenario is a focus group and asking people like, why do you think this happened? You know, what, what would you imagine could have led to this? And, and you'll be amazed with the things that everyday people come up with that you never thought of, but is on that sort of natural slate in people's minds about, you know, the way the world works. That's for sure. I, people are starting to proposed theories to me that uh, surgical negligence was the result of doctors running multiple ORs at the same time, all because of a you know, notable event in our community where that came out in the press. So I think people generally, they, they learn about one event and they think it's the norm at hospitals. So yeah, that, I think that was a good discussion on the, the different ways event cases versus system failure cases uh, play out, how to think about them, how to look out for them. I think it was always it was a great observation by Keenan and Ball that that they've you know continued to you know push that that's the way that you should look at it. You know, my only caveat is that you know there are certain event cases that are winners, and you should not just as as a med mal practitioner you know toss out every case that's uh, an event you know seeming event case because number one it might be winnable in and of itself if you get the right kind of factors there. Number two, it might actually be a hidden system failures case that that you will uncover as you get into discovery. So um, the last uh, little parting trial tip of the day I'll, uh, I'll leave everybody with, again, comes from my main man, Rick Friedman, and uh, talking about a concept called induced emotion, which I have certainly 
uh, fallen into this trap before, which sort of is summarized in the following, says, the same thing happens in the courtroom. If you are emotional in opening statement, venting your anger at the defendant, you leave little room for the juror's anger. They may even push back, finding ways to view your anger as inappropriate. One friend of mine expresses this concept by saying, you should never let your emotions get out ahead of the jurors. Jerry Spence expresses a similar concept saying, you should not destroy a witness until the jury wants that witness destroyed. And I think that's something really important to always keep in mind as our emotions and everything were amped up or under stress. You know, we, we know all this stuff that the jury's never going to hear about how unfair or, you know, how bad the care or actions were and so forth. And you always have to take a step back and, and think of it from the juror's perspective and try to dial, and this is mostly, I'm saying this to myself, dial those emotions back to allow, you know, the, the jury to, you know, become the ones angry. And if anything, be annoyed with you, the lawyer, why aren't you getting more angry about this versus us firing brimstone, banging the table with our hand and yelling and screaming and so forth, which is going to steal that power from the jury and, if anything, make them angry at you. I second that emotion. <laughs> All right. Take a big show pill and your chances uh, of resonating with the jury will be a lot better. Eat some beta blockers. So, All right, Greg, another good episode. Talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks for tuning in to Trial and Medical Error. We hope our discussions have equipped you with actionable insights to lift your clients above the hurdles of medical malpractice litigation. Ready to refer or collaborate on MedMal and catastrophic injury cases? Visit our attorney referral page at pamedmal.com forward slash refer. See you in the next episode.